Okay, good evening, everyone. Our topic for tonight is the challenges in capturing Adolf Eichmann. So I, what I want to discuss tonight is not what happens after Eichmann gets to Israel and his trial and the impact that had on, on, on the Jewish people or on Israeli society. I've discussed that a little bit in earlier years. Tonight's all about what happened to Eichmann between May of 1945 and his arrival in Israel on May 22nd, 1960. So when the war ended, Eichmann was in the, was in the Alps, but there was no last stand. There was some thought that they'd have a, a, a heroic last stand of the SS against the Allied forces. It never happened. The troops dispersed. And he visited his family one last time, knowing that he could not stay with them, he wanted to sort of kiss them goodbye, and whatever would happen would happen. He regretted, Adolf Eichmann deeply regretted, both in forty-five and later, all the way up until 1960, that he did not extort Jews during the war. Many Nazi officials, high-ranking and not-so-high-ranking SS officials throughout the war, extorted gold and valuables from Jews. Eichmann actually didn't do that. And because of it, he had nothing to show for it when the war was over. He was on the losing team with, with Bupkis. He had nothing. Um, his boys were at that time nine, five, and three years old, respectively. What he needed to do was to avoid the Americans. Now, he really wanted to avoid the Soviets also, but he was, in, uh, for the most part, in American parts of the, of, of the country, American-occupied parts of the country, and he had to avoid them as best he could. He didn't want to get captured. So he assumed that he would be safe high up in the mountains. But he had little money, no safe house, and no forged papers. And the noose was tightening. He was captured by the Americans on his way to Salzburg, and he said his name was Adolf Barth. So he made up a fake name. Um, he escaped the camp that he was put in and kept on going. He spent some time in Salzburg, uh, in May of 1945, he was captured again, and this time he said his name was Otto Ekman. Why the name Otto Ekman? Because it's close enough to Eichmann that uh, if someone called him by the name Eichmann, he could pretend that he heard Ekman. So it, it was a, a strategy to have data which is similar to the real name, but different enough that no one will... If they don't really know who he is, they won't they won't figure it out. And he said he was born on March 19th, 1905, which is close because his birthday was March 19th, but it was 1906. And he said he was born in Breslau, which he was not. And why Breslau? Because the city of Breslau had been bombed and the uh, municipal building where all the records were kept had been destroyed. And he knew that. So he was confident that if he said I was from Breslau, nobody could ever verify his identity because all the records were gone. Um, in June of 45, he was sent to a labor camp at Wyden for POWs. So he's going to have to do you know hard labor as a admittedly SS officer, but not Adolf Eichmann, rather Otto Ekman. The OSS interviewed Eichmann's father, trying to get some whereabouts about, about the son. But the father hardly knew anything. He wasn't uh, covering up for his son. The father really didn't know anything. And they asked for photographs. Problem was, there were no photographs. Adolf Eichmann was uh, obsessive over not being photographed throughout life. There were only a handful that were ever taken. Eventually, they would become available to those pursuing him. But at first, there were no pictures. So nobody knows uh, you know, where he is. In August of 45, this Eichmann, who's really who's Otto Eichmann, but they don't know that, uh, was in a labor camp at Oberdachstetten. And while he was there, there were no Germans who knew who he was. Um, he passed through all the Jewish lineups. They would have Jews stand before a lineup of uh, SS officers to see if the Jews recognized any of these men. Maybe they were high-ranking officials in disguise. And every single time he was in a lineup, he was able to get through. Why is this the case? Because he was a behind-the-scenes guy. 
and most of the, nearly all the victims of the final solution never met him, could not identify him by face. He had a tough interrogation in October of 1945, and he sensed that he was about to be exposed, and he contemplated suicide because he feared that he would be tortured. And yet, by January of 46, Adolf Eichmann was still not yet exposed, despite being in a, a Allied captivity for over half a year. How do we explain the fact that six months go by or more, they have the, the Americans have this guy, and they can't figure out who he is? The answer is it's an overstretched administration. It's the 1940s, not the 2020s. There's no internet. There's no database. I mean, everything is being done manually, mechanically. It's hard to identify people. And they, the Americans just don't know who he is. But Eichmann got nervous because he found out that his friend Dieter Wilensky had told on him to the Allies. And if one friend told on him, that it's possible that other friends would tell on him, including the one or two people who did know his current alias and his current location. So he felt that he needed to escape. It, it, it was necessary to get out of Allied captivity. And with the help of a few SS officers, he put on hunter's clothing, burned or tried to burn off his SS tattoo under his armpit, and got forged papers in the name of Otto Henninger. So now Adolf Eichmann, a.k.a. AKA Adolf Barth, a.k.a. Otto Ekman, a.k.a. Otto Henninger. He's got a lot of different names now. It's not easy to keep track of all of them. But for the most part, he didn't have to. He just had to know one at a time. So Jewish Avengers were running around Europe in late 45, early 46, trying to kill as many high-ranking Nazis as they could. There's movies about this, okay? And they poisoned the bread in one of the camps, and 2,000 Germans got sick and diarrhea, but nobody died. Uh, but there were certain episodes where people did get killed. And the Jewish Avengers killed Adolf Eichmann, or so they thought. Turned out, they killed a guy, but it wasn't Eichmann. Uh, it was the wrong guy. Meantime, where's the real Eichmann? He becomes a lumberjack. In February of 1946, um, and he works in the Lundberg Heath in northern Germany, about 60 miles away from Hamburg. There's a, a photograph of Eichmann, which was found in 1946 in the home of a courtesan or a harlot in Linz, who had known Eichmann and had known many prominent SS officials. So now... Those who were chasing after him, which includes Simon Wiesenthal, Tobia Friedman, the Haganah, uh, are, have a, a, an awareness of what the guy looks like. But Eichmann was up in the middle of nowhere as a lumberjack. Yet he didn't like it there because he felt he was more of a mole than a man. He was accustomed to the good life while he was a prominent SS official. And now he's out in the cold in the forest uh, chopping down trees. In December of 47, he said to himself, I have to have a new life. I can't be here forever. And around that time, Vera Eichmann, his wife, petitioned the court for a death certificate. The claim was that Eichmann had been killed by partisans on April 30th, 1945, the same day that Hitler died. However, that was complete baloney. Everybody knew it wasn't true. So Eichmann goes from being a lumberjack to being a chicken farmer. Uh, again in the Lundberg Heath, and he's there in 1949 through early 1950. In April 1950, he makes a decision. It's time to escape Germany altogether. So he tells his handful of contacts deliberately conflicting stories so nobody really knows where he went. And he takes the SS Underground Railroad out of Germany to Austria, to Italy, to Argentina where he would have a new name of Ricardo Clement. So the, you know, the, the part of the story I've told until now is not a very well-known part of the story. Everybody knows Ricardo Clement when he gets to Argentina. Um, the ship left Genoa on July 17, 1950, and he landed in Buenos Aires. Eichmann got a job working as an engineer with the Capri Company, which was run by an ex-Nazi and which employed several hundred Germans. He lived in the isolated province of Tuckman, 
which is about 700 miles away from Buenos Aires. And he learned to be evasive in speaking about his past. But he got lonely, and he wanted to bring his family to Argentina. So under the pretense of visiting an uncle, the family arrived at Buenos Aires on July 26, 1952. The family, and this was the key part of the story, which leads to his eventual capture, the family lived under the name Eichmann, not Clement. So Vera was Vera Eichmann. And the kids, Dieter and Horst and, uh, and Nick, uh, really Klaus, but they called him Nick, um, they were known by the last name Eichmann. Well, who is looking for Eichmann? As I said, Wiesenthal, Friedman, a few of the others are looking for him. But um, when Vera Eichmann disappeared, all the, the, uh, the Nazi hunters basically gave up hope. And we're not going to find this guy. And all the files were sent to Yad Vashem. Basically, pack up the files. This is this guy's gone for good. So now we get to where the story gets interesting and where all the movies begin. All the movies about Eichmann don't tell the story of 45 to 56. They just tell the story of 56 and onward, and mostly 58 and onward. What happened? The girlfriend. Nick Eichmann, the oldest son, had a girlfriend named Sylvia Herman. And her father was half-Jewish, Lothar Herman. However, nobody knew that. Not even, the daughter didn't even know. Nick uh, was basically a Nazi like his father. Papa Eichmann had no remorse, would say viciously anti-Jewish things. And the son picked up on it and felt the same way. He was also a rabid um, uh, Argentinian nationalist, but most of the Germans in Argentina in Argentina became right-wing Argentinian nationalists. So, I, Nick Eichmann made anti-Jewish comments in the presence of Lothar Herman in December of 1956. And Herman kept quiet, didn't want to blow the cover. Adolf Eichmann was jealous that many of the ex-Nazis who were living in Argentina were wealthy, while he was still poor, terribly poor, living in a low-class job in a house without electricity. Uh, Life was not good for Adolf Eichmann. So the relevance of the, 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 the son's girlfriend and the fact that he was poor will come together in the building of a new house in an out-of-the-way place that will eventually be the scene of all the action. So Eichmann lost his job in 53, then had a, a series of failed businesses and bad investments and menial jobs. Uh, his only joy was the birth of his fourth son, Ricardo, in Argentina. Now, of all the members of the Eichmann family, only Ricardo was uh, a non-Nazi. Uh, and even Vera, was, although she was not a Nazi, she was sympathetic to anti-Jewish uh, stuff. But Ricardo was a baby. He would go on to become a, a friend of the Jews, a philo-Semite and a friend of Israel, uh, and is a prominent archaeologist. So Sylvia saw in April of 1957 an article about Adolf Eichmann in an Argentinian newspaper. And Lothar, her father, immediately realized that Nick was Adolf Eichmann's son. Uh, how did he know? I mean, other than the fact that Nick's, Nick's last name was Eichmann, how did he know that the, that the father was a war criminal? The answer is because Nick had never spoken about his father and had never allowed Sylvia to go to his house or even to know his address. The secretive nature of the whole thing was a dead giveaway. So Lothar decided he was going to send a message to some authority figure that a war criminal is hanging out here in Argentina, in Buenos Aires. Who does he write to? He wrote to the Frankfurt prosecutor, Fritz Bauer. The Frankfurt prosecutor, Fritz Bauer, was himself a Jew and had been persecuted during the Holocaust, but had survived. And he was very excited to receive this letter. Bauer needed Herman to confirm the suspicions were true. So Sylvia went back to Buenos Aires 
to find Nick. And she found out the address of the Eichmann or the Clements family from a mutual friend. He knocked on the door, met Vera, and met Adolf Eichmann. But Nick was not home. Nick came home and was horribly upset to see his girlfriend or former girlfriend in his home. But Adolf calmed him down, and Nick referred to Adolf as my father, not my uncle. So that was the giveaway that that Ricardo Clement was not some uncle, but really was Adolf Eichmann. So again, another piece of the puzzle is being revealed in the presence of Sylvia Herman. Okay. Now, Bauer, the prosecutor, turned to Israel because Interpol was, was useless. And he couldn't rely upon the German Ministry of Justice because they would bury the story and had plus had plenty of ex-Nazis who were part of the German ministry. And he couldn't rely upon the German embassies in South America because they too were probably filled with Nazis. So you couldn't rely upon anybody. The only solution is go to the Israelis. The Israeli representative in Germany, uh, by the way, who was not an ambassador because Israel did not yet officially have diplomatic relations with West Germany that would not come until a few years later, uh, told Walter Eitan, who told Isser Harel, the head of the Mossad. But Isser wasn't all that excited at first. The Mossad had other priorities. I mean, Eichmann was once a danger to the Jews, but not anymore. He's just a, a, an ex-war criminal. At, at the present time, what's the danger to the Jews? You know, the Arab countries, Egypt, Syria, uh, Lebanon, Jordan, Iraq, whatever it is, the, uh, the Ferrayin. So Harel doesn't want to spend too many resources chasing down what might be a bogus lead about Eichmann, who's not currently a problem. Yeah, sure, it'd be great to capture him, but are we really going to pursue this angle? Isser was quite reluctant. So, nonetheless, Isser was curious, and he read the file. Um, he sent an agent to interview Bauer, and Bauer would not reveal his source. He did not identify Lothar Herman as the source of information. Isser then sent Yoel Gorin uh, to the address in Buenos Aires in January of 58. And Gorin thought it was a, for, a false lead, that there's no way that Adolf Eichmann could be this poor living in a rundown hovel in, in the middle of nowhere. That Eichmann, as a prominent member of the SS, would have had to have been living the good life somewhere. This couldn't possibly be him. So Bauer uh, relented and gave the Mossad Lothar Herman's name. The Mossad went to Lothar, pretending to be Bauer's agents, and they were shocked to find that Lothar Herman was blind. The guy who was their source, to, that, that, that this is Adolf Eichmann, is blind. So now they're really annoyed. This is a totally a bogus lead. But eventually, uh, they were convinced that he knew what he was talking about. Still, they needed more evidence. So Sylvia and Lothar agreed to go to Buenos Aires at the Mossad's expense to try to get photographic evidence that it really was Adolf Eichmann. In April and May of 58, the Hermans chased down this info. They got land records, utility records, etc. And there was information here which was confirming that Ricardo Clement really was Eichmann. Harrell read the report, but he thought it was a scam. Harrell, Isser Harrell was not yet convinced. And by August 1958, the Mossad severed the connection with the Hermans. So when the story is retold that Isser Harrell was the big hero here, yes, in the end, it all worked out fine. But two years later than it could have been, because Isser was, was convinced this was a scam, and he dropped, he dropped the ball for a while. Now, the CIA and German intelligence both had information that Ricardo Clement was in fact in Buenos Aires and was Adolf Eichmann, but they did nothing. So in 59, Eichmann and his sons decide to move from Chicabuku Street to Garibaldi Street. And that's why the name of the movie is The House on Garibaldi Street, not The House on Chicabuku Street. So they build a new house with their bare hands, a brick house in San Fernando, a northern suburb of Buenos Aires. It's an, an area with no running water, with no electricity yet. So there are no there are no municipal utilities. And that was deliberate. Aside from the fact they were poor and didn't want to have to pay, it was because the city didn't keep accurate records of land purchases and swaps 
that didn't involve the payment of, of utility taxes. So they could stay off the grid, literally, you know, the earlier version of the grid. Okay, now, Eichmann got a new job at a Mercedes plant, and he finally was happy with his job. It was about 20 miles south of town. It was a long commute every day, took the bus, but he was happy in his job. Yet, he was increasingly bitter about Germany's defeat in the war and was at odds with local Germans. He was not on good terms with the other Germans in town. Um, around this time, Tuvia Friedman, one of the Nazi hunters, wrote an article that Eichmann was found in Kuwait, the, the, the infamous Kuwait theory. Herman read the article and wrote back to Tuvia Friedman that, no, Eichmann is not in Kuwait. Eichmann's in Buenos Aires. We know exactly where he is. So Bauer went to Israel in December of 59, and he said to the Israelis, I'm not leaving uh, unless you give me a yes. I'm not taking no for an answer. You guys have to pursue this uh, Ricardo Clement angle. So Bauer went to the Attorney General, Chaim Cohn, rather than to Isser Harel. And there was a meeting between Chaim Cohn, Isser Harel, uh, Bauer, and Svia Haroni. Svia Haroni being the, the Mossad interrogator. Bauer threatened, if you don't take this case, I'm going to go to the German authorities. And if I do, they're probably going to drop the ball altogether or expose things and, and Eichmann's going to run. So Mossad finally agreed. They sent Svia Haroni to Buenos Aires. And now it's time for real Mossad reconnaissance of Garibaldi Street. Now, on December 6, 59, Ben-Gurion told Mr. Harel, don't let Bauer go to the Germans. Instead, Israel will get Eichmann and bring him back to Israel alive. Don't kill him there. And we're not going to prosecute him in Germany or Argentina. We're going to prosecute him in Israel. Okay, that's a big challenge. So Israel knew it would be tough. And Cohen, I am Cohen, the attorney general, questioned the legality of trying Eichmann in Israel because Israel did not exist in 1945. So the crime could not have been committed against the Israeli state, which was non-existent at the time. Um, but you know, neo-Nazism was on the rise in Germany in the, late, in the late 50s and early 60s. And the capture of Eichmann was seen as something that was needed to remind people of the threat of resurgent Nazism. So the decision was, they're going to fool Eichmann by pursuing publicly pursuing the Kuwait angle, the theory that he was in Kuwait. This way, he thinks they're not looking for him in Argentina. Tzvi Aroni arrives in Buenos Aires on March 1st, 1960, on a diplomatic passport with a fake name. And he needed help from the local Sayanim. What are Sayanim? So Sayanim are local Jews who volunteered to do little missions for the Mossad without knowing what they're doing. Like they're given a little short task which is an important piece in the bigger puzzle, but they don't know what the bigger puzzle is. They just know we're doing something for Am Yisrael. Okay, so Aroni has the Sayanim help him. And they quickly learned that Clement had moved away from the original address, from Shukabuka Street. But where to? They don't know. They, they, they lost the trail. So how do you regain the trail once you've lost it? So the answer is, they have a, they have a scheme. The cigarette, the cigarette lighter scheme. The, what happened? Um, a local kid delivered an expensive cigarette lighter for Nick Clement. And the construction workers say, oh, that family just moved away. But his brother, Dito, or Dieter, works nearby. Okay? And uh, Dito said they live in Don Tarquato. Who knows where that is? The point is, that they have a connection to the brother. The brother works in a mechanic shop not far away, and he's telling them that they live a little further over. Okay, time to check the situation. Aroni sends back a code to headquarters. The driver is red. The driver is red is code word for Clement is likely Eichmann. Why is he likely Eichmann? Because we found one of his kids. We know that he used to live here. We, we don't know exactly where he lives now, but we're pretty sure that the evidence suggests we have the guy, the, the guy we're looking for is the right guy. They followed Dito after work on, a, on his moped 
towards San Fernando, but they lost him before they got to the final address. So uh, Haroni has Juan, his Sayan, go to the mechanic shop with, with this lighter. And the carpenter gives directions to the new house. Dito was annoyed, saying the package, package was for Nick Clement. Um, but no such person exists. It's Nick Eichmann, not Nick Clement. So that was a further indication. The real last name is Eichmann, not Clement. Well, Aroni was very pleased with the Sayan's work. Now, courtesy of this uh, expensive cigarette lighter, we, we know where we're going. We know where, where to look. So on March 12th, Aroni found a house near a kiosk off of Route 202, and he saw Vera Eichmann in the yard. It was Eichmann's 25th wedding anniversary on March 21st, and Aroni assumed that um, Eichmann would be home from the business that he had in Tucumán uh, in time for the anniversary. But Aroni almost screwed up badly. On March 16th, he was... Uh, doing some reconnaissance with a suitcase camera and taking pictures of Vera. But the daughter-in-law, the wife of, uh, of, um, of Nick, got suspicious when they said they were interested in buying land for a factory. The problem is there's no electricity and water here. What kind of a company sends representatives to try to buy a property where there's no utilities? So the, the cover story sounded fake. And Aharoni had to quickly hightail out of there. So it goes to show you, if you try to get too, too much reconnaissance, too much surveillance, you can make a blunder. On March 17th, he went to the land records, and it showed that Vera was the owner of the property and that she had not remarried. So if she had not remarried, and there's a guy living with her, and it's not the uncle, it's the father, then Ricardo Clement is Adolf Eichmann, not some other dude. It turned out Eichmann was not away on business. He was actually home the whole time. And he suspected those guys who were trying to buy property uh, were not Americans, but were Jews looking for it. Eichmann is very suspicious. He thinks that the Jews are out to get him, and they're on his, on his case. The boys had not told him about the cigarette lighter episode. Had they told him about that, he would have put two plus two equals four and might have gone running away. But in the meantime, Eichmann didn't run away, despite his nervousness and despite the fact that there's some you know sus uh, sus legitimate suspicions that he has. Okay. Now, Aharoni saw Eichmann outside the house for the first time on March 18th. And he was convinced it was him. It looked like him. Okay, just from a, the naked eye, it looked like the right guy. So he sends back a coded message. The driver is black, which was code for, I'm convinced that it's Eichmann. But the mission was going to have many challenges. You know, it's one thing for Aharoni to find Eichmann. It's quite, quite another for them to send a hit team and extract him. What are some of the challenges? So first of all, it's 9,000 miles away from home, and very few Mossad agents spoke Spanish. It's a hostile environment with many pro-Nazi officials. There's no easy communication with Tel Aviv. There's no local support. You can get arrested. It'll hurt the Mossad's reputation everywhere if they do get arrested. Uh, and Eichmann was a seasoned intelligence officer who would, might know how to escape the clutches of the Mossad. So it's going to be very difficult to pull this off. And in fact, it's three missions all rolled into one. How so? There's the capture, which is probably the easiest of the three. There's the holding of Eichmann in captivity in Argentina, awaiting uh, 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 escape from the country. And then there's the actual escape from the country, which is going to be challenging. They have to figure out a way to get him out. So Harrell wanted to be there on the ground to make decisions, but not to participate physically in the, the mission. And for the command of the mission itself, he put in charge Rafi Eitan. Rafi, who we've, we've seen from a few previous lectures, Rafi the Stinker was a leading agent of the Shin Bet, not of the Mossad, but then again, uh, on the um, on this mission, it was mostly Shin Bet because Mossad did not have an operations squad. Okay, so Aharoni got a close-up picture of Eichmann on April 3rd. And on April 8th, Aharoni went home to Israel. A team of eight agents were assembled. Attorney General Chaim Cohn and uh, Justice Minister Pinchas Rosen gave their consent, 
So now there's legal authority within the state of Israel for this mission to go forward. Each agent needed a, multiple fake identities and fake passports. Um, it was a challenge to produce all this stuff. And the, uh, the equipment was be sent, whatever couldn't be bought on the scene, would be sent in a diplomatic pouch. Peter Malkin was one of those chosen. He wanted to avenge the death of his family. And he spent nights in Tel Aviv before the departure, combing through Eichmann's file. The big question would be how to get Eichmann back to Israel. So it could not be by sea. A boat would take way too long. The Argentinian authorities would know what's going on by then. The boat could be stopped in the middle of the ocean. It had to be by air. But the problem is, it's too far for the IDF. This ain't. A, this is not, you know, Uganda, uh, 1976. This is South America, 1960. So what about El Al, the national carrier? El Al had participated in several previous Mossad operations. So you could get them to cooperate if it was technically feasible. The problem was Mossad, that El Al did not fly to South America at that time in 1960. And... Um, to say that this would be a test run would be a very dubious cover story. Well, Isser met with Ben-Gurion on April 28th, the day before... Um, I, well, actually, so th- th- there's, a, there's a solution. The solution for the, the flight issue was that El Al was going to send a plane for the 150th celebration of Argentina's independence. And ambassadors were going, government officials were going from all different countries. So you could send an Israeli delegation to wish Mazel Tov to the Argentinians on their century and a half of uh, of freedom. So who was going to go? Abba Iben was going to go. The, the best, you know, send the best speaker you got, Abba Iben. Well, Yaakov Meidad was the front man in Argentina who would arrange the logistics. Why Meidad? He was the best at switching identities on the fly. Isser assembled the team in Israel and gave them a parting patriotic Jewish speech. You know, like, you, like you'd see in the movies, you know, where, where one last parting speech where all the Tzionut and all the, the Yahadut goes, comes into play. All the team members arrived in Buenos Aires from separate ways, separate paths. And they saw Eichmann on April 26th. It's him. They went by, they went by the house. From a distance, they saw it was him. The flight on El Al was scheduled to leave Tel Aviv, or Lod Airport, on March 11th. It could remain in Buenos Aires at most a week without raising suspicion. Ideally, it would return the day after it arrived, limiting the time needed for Eichmann to remain in captivity on the ground in Argentina. The challenges were there were roadblocks and tightened security everywhere. How to get Eichmann to the airport and on a plane. So, and make sure the plane was not diverted or forced down. The pilot and the LL ground crew would be critical. They had to get the job done under a lot of pressure, a lot of stress. Could the flight be done with only one stopover instead of three? The pilot said yes, but the plane would pass the point of no return somewhere over the ocean and could, could, could uh, run out of fuel and everyone could die. But the pilot said, Speed Tower, the pilot said, it's an acceptable level of risk. So instead of going from Argent, from Buenos Aires to Recife, to Dakar, Senegal, to Rome, to Tel Aviv, it was going to go Buenos Aires, Dakar, Tel Aviv, skipping Recife and Rome. Um, the agents watched Eichmann come and go from work each night on the 203 bus. They perfected his timing which wasn't that difficult to perfect because he was the Yekid Eichmann and he himself had perfect timing. You know, he would, he was very consistent, very consistent. But the LL employees from around the world got funny messages about reporting to Buenos Aires ASAP. And they didn't know what was going on because of the LL employees, only the pilot, only the captain knew the, the full truth before they, before they took off. Everybody else is wondering well, what's going on over here. Why are we going to Buenos Aires? Okay. Well, um, Isra Harel met with Ben-Gurion on April 28th. And Isra wanted to go to Argentina. But military intelligence, the Amman, strongly warned 
against the operation in general and specifically against Isser going to Argentina. Why do they want against the operation? It was a distraction from current dangers. Too many men were away from their post in the Shin Bet and Mossad at a, for far too long at a time when the Arab enemies are, you know, causing trouble. And they opposed Isser going in person because could you imagine if the head of the Mossad was arrested in Argentina? That would be a disaster. So better he should stay home and not and not manage things from the ground. But Isser wanted to go, and Ben Gurion agreed. He asked Isser when he'd be back. He said three to four weeks. Ben Gurion said, "Bring him back dead or alive, but preferably alive." Okay. Well, Harrell kept secret, even from his own team of agents, one very important piece of information, and that is he wanted this mission to be a two for one. He wanted to get Mangala in addition to Eichmann on the same flight back uh, from Buenos Aires because there was some information that Mangala was around and that maybe Eichmann knew where he was. And if we could, uh, uh, you know, rough up Eichmann, we'll get information on Mangala and get both of them. Well, uh, the agents on the ground were working on a safe route that would take them from Garibaldi Street away to the safe house. Finding reliable rental cars was a problem. Argentina had a lot of old uh, junky cars that often tanked out. So you need to spend top dollar finding reliable cars that could pass for diplomatic limousines. But if you have cash and persistence, you could find it. And Yaakov Medad was the front man. He did the best to find all this stuff. They also had to find safe houses, several of them. There was the Tira where Eichmann would go. There was Maoz. There was Ramim. There was a bunch of different Hebrew names for different safe houses uh, where the agents would, would hang out. Yosef Klein, um, his job was to handle the plane and the relationship with the airport and the Argentinian authorities. This would be a very difficult job because um, there was no prior relationship between El Al and the airport, and they needed to have the plane serviced and refueled, food, uh, permissions, uh, permits from the aviation ministry, where you're going to tow the, the plane to at the terminal. And all these questions were very important questions because they're going to try to sneak a guy onto the plane not going through the terminal. So how do you get a guy on the tarmac? All sorts of questions that come up. Joseph Klein is the man on that. Well, there's some bad news. What's the bad news? The bad news is that Argentina cannot welcome the Israelis until May 19th. And the intention had been for the capture to be on um, May 10th and a departure on May 14th. But now, what are you going to do? It's it's delayed. So on the one hand, you could delay the capture and risk losing Eichmann. Or you could stick to to the capture date, but then have to hold him for an extra week. Holding him that long time, the family could alert the police, the family could alert the Nazis, they, they might pounce on the, on the safe house. There is no good solution here. Do you take Eichmann early or do you take Eichmann late? There's a there's a pro and a con to, to each side, but it's it's a bad situation they didn't want to be in. Okay. Now, Aharoni took the 203 bus on May 4th and got on eight stops before Garibaldi Street. And there was only one empty seat on the bus. It was the seat directly behind Eichmann. He was close enough he could have snapped the guy's neck if he really wanted to. But uh, the decision was reached. They're going to capture Eichmann on his walk from the bus to the, to the house, just after turning off of Route 202 and on to Garibaldi. But the question was exactly how to position the vehicles uh, and where the men should be stationed. Issa decided to stick with May 10th, capture him early, and hold him for a week. Why? Better to have Eichmann and risk a pro- uh, than risk a problem and have to cancel. But you got to practice getting Eichmann into the car. So every second counts. And the goal was to have no more than 12 seconds for the whole operation from the time Eichmann gets alerted to, the, to an, another human being to him being in the car. How do you get Eichmann on the plane? Couldn't be through the terminal. There's too many inspectors. So it's got to be that you'll park the plane 
near the edge of the airfield where all the other Britannia planes were parked and there was very little security. All right, that's ultimately what would happen. The forger was working on how to switch license plates from within inside the vehicle. And you could have uh, a method by with a, with a hook to, to change the license plate so that the cars would not be followed. Um, the team was getting ready. The problem was the safe house had a gardener. And there's only so many times you can send the gardener out on, on errands. So no, 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 nothing was perfect, but they did their best. The takedown of Eichmann was going to happen by agents Tabor and Malkin. Uh, and they rehearsed it very, very frequently because they wanted to make it absolutely perfect. I met Peter Malkin, or Tzvi Malkin. He spoke at Hafter High School when I was uh, in ninth grade, I believe. Uh, and he was an older gentleman at that point. And uh, he told us, he showed us how, how he did what he did. Okay. So there's one more agent, the doctor, Dr. Maurice Kaplan, which is a fake name. It's not his real name. He was an anesthesiologist, and he came on May 8th. He told the hospital, I have Miluim in Sahal. I have reserve duty. But really, he was going to, to sedate Eichmann. Harel warned Ambassador Levavi of Israel to Argentina, who was not yet in the know. The ambassador did not know until the day before the capture. And he said, get the embassy ready. There could be riots. Okay. So, dangerous times. Now, Aharoni had a plan for the capture. And Malkin didn't like it because it had too much risk of failure. Malkin proposed a better idea. Two cars, one on Route 202, one on Garibaldi. The first car will blind Eichmann with its lights on, and the second car will have its hood up to, to pretend as though there was car engine trouble, and that'll keep Eichmann at ease and not thinking that there's anyone out to get him. Isser accepted Malkin's idea. Uh, and he, uh, Malkin was able to convince Isser that a proud Nazi like Eichmann would not cut across the, the, the lawn in the mud and muddy his shiny boots. And the, the fear was that if Eichmann saw people on the sidewalk or on the st- side of the street, he would run across the yard through the grassy area and get into the house. But Malkin was convinced, don't worry, that isn't going to happen. He's going to go on the sidewalk the whole way and we'll grab him. On May 10th, a car approached Eichmann and asked for directions. It wasn't the Mossad, but Eichmann got nervous because who's approaching him on, on, the, on Route 202 for directions? Okay. Now, Malkin had to practice his Spanish, which wasn't very good. What's he going to say to Eichmann to, to sort of distract him? Uh, what time is it? One of the sort of the things. So he said, un momento, senor, un momento, senor. But what if it wasn't Eichmann? So now we have all sorts of questions. You know, they know what to do if it's really him and if things go well. What if things go wrong? What number one? What if it's not Eichmann? What do you do then? So they had a, they had up a plan. Plan was grab the guy. If it turns out in the car that it's the wrong guy, drive him three hundred miles out of town, dump him outside the vehicle with about a thousand dollars cash, and and disappear, and then get out of the country. Don't don't kill anybody. Just dump him far away and give him some money. That was one scenario that could go wrong. What if Eichmann gets into the house? The answer is break the door down and grab him. What if the police give chase, use evasive maneuvers, and break every traffic law? What if you're caught with Eichmann by the police? The answer is Rafi Eitan was supposed to handcuff himself to Eichmann and not let go, and everyone else is supposed to run away. And then Eitan would say to the, to the Argentinian police, I'm a member of a squad of Jewish Avengers working privately to get a Nazi war criminal. Um, Malkin wore what a pair of new gloves. He did not want to physically touch Adolf Eichmann. He did the takedown, but with gloves on. May 11th was the big day. They arrived in their position at 7.35. No guns. Guns make things complicated. One of the things we'll learn about many of the lectures about the Mossad is that Mossad agents don't like to carry guns. If you need a gun, you've already lost. It's Chachma that wins. Uh, when, we, when we discuss Ethiopian Jewry and the escape from, from Sudan that's, uh, and, and, and Kenya, um, that's going to play a role. So Eichmann is supposed to arrive 
at 7.40. But he doesn't. Time is passing. 7.50, 7.55, 8 o'clock. Do you stay or do you go? Uh, Rafi has to make the decision. Are we going to stick around? How much longer are we going to stick around? Rafi said stick around. 8.05, finally here. So the capture ended up taking 25 seconds. Longer, much longer than they would have wanted. Malkin and, and, and Eichmann fell into a ditch, and it was complicated by a fear that Eichmann might have had a gun, which he didn't. It was a flashlight, but he just had, had his hand in his pocket, so Malkin had to keep the, uh, Eichmann's hand from, from getting out of the pocket. Um, in the car, they put on a heavy blanket over Eichmann. They put motorcycle goggles with blacked-out holes so you couldn't see, and they yelled at him. And they said, sit still and nothing will happen to you. If you resist, we'll shoot you. But Eichmann stopped, d- didn't resist really at that point. He was totally compliant. Uh, the driver was told, don't speed, don't break any traffic laws. Get to the safe house. By 8.55, they were at Tiro, which was the name of the safe house. The interrogation began at 9.15. They asked him, what's your SS number? What's your Nazi party number? Uh, what was your name? And he gave a, the, the fake name. And then, what's your name again? He gave another fake name. Which were all real aliases that he had. And then they, and then they said, well, what was, what was the name you were born under? Adolf Eichmann. He admitted who he was. Uh, a hush came over the crowd. So Harel sent back word to Ben-Gurion. The code was, the typewriter is okay. Meaning we have him in custody and it's really him. At midnight, Malkin said, uh-oh. I got to go back to the site of the of the capture. Why? That's dangerous. That's risky. They could find you. What happened? Eichmann's glasses fell off. And if we leave him there, people will know that he was abducted. Otherwise, they could think that he that that he that he disappeared in other ways. That he that he was in a hospital. Who knows what? A thousand different things could have happened to Eichmann that he didn't come home. But if his if his ditch, if glasses are in a ditch, they know that it was a struggle and he was abducted. So Malkin, uh, Isser didn't want him to go, but Malkin went and he found some glass, but he didn't find the frames. So it was kind of for nothing. Um, for the next 10 days, 11 days, Eichmann would be kept at Tira. What if the Nazis came to rescue him? So what would happen then? Tabor said, I'll take him to the basement and strangle him. In other words, we'll kill him uh, before the Nazis could get in. Eichmann might have contemplated an escape, but it wasn't at all realistic. There was no way he was escaping, and he didn't even try to. On March 12th, while in custody, Eichmann told Aharoni basically his whole life story from 1945 to 1960. And he was honest. Eichmann didn't hide any information. Uh, Aharoni said, what about Mengele? What about Martin Bormann? Spooky Martin Bormann, who nobody knows what happened to him. And Eichmann said, I don't know anything. And the truth is, he didn't know anything. Eichmann gave the impression that he did not really like his fellow ex-Nazis and didn't expect them to try to save him, and they didn't. Eichmann showed no remorse. He was just following orders. Um, He resisted and rejected the suggestion that he go for trial in Israel. His argument was, I have nothing to do with Israel. Israel was was not a country in my time back then. So uh, try me in Germany or try me in Argentina where he's a citizen. The question then was, how to get Eichmann on the plane? There are three possibilities. One is put him in a crate of diplomatic cargo. That's not going to work. Second option, a caterer's cart when they put the food on the plane. Eh, Also not very good. The third option, which they ultimately chose, put him in an LL uniform, pretend he's an employee and sedate him and bring him on the plane as though he were drunk or, or, uh, you know, not well. So there were pros and cons to each of these, but the third one was the best option. Um, It was emotionally tough on the agents who were guarding him at Tira. Eichmann was totally obedient. He was not a threat at all, but still it it was draining to be near him. A couple of days in, Judith Nesiyahu arrived, female agent. Uh, she, she was there to play the role of Yaakov Medad's wife. So in case anyone got suspicious, what's going on here? Why it's all men? So she, she was to be like the dutiful wife 
uh, of the front man, Maydat. And she was also there to help cook because none of the guys knew how to cook at all. They could barely make eggs. When Ben-Gurion heard the news that Eichmann was in custody, he showed only limited excitement because as far as he was concerned, the mission was nowhere near being over. Nick and Dieter Eichmann were scared not only about their father, what happened to him, but they were nervous that maybe their mother and little brother would be next. So they have to do something, but the Germans won't help, and they can't go to the Argentinian police without exposing who they really are and who their father really is. So instead they go to the Takawara. Takawara was uh, like a right-wing Argentinian nationalist organization with pro-Nazi sentiment. Maybe they'll help us. At this time, Isser tried to find Mengele, but Eitan told him, Isser, you're, you're barking up a wrong tree. And he quoted the Gemara. What Gemara did Rafi Eitan quote to Isser Harel? Tafasta meruba, lo, tafasta. If you try to grab too much, you grab nothing. Okay, don't be a chazer. You have one, don't try to get two. It's complicated enough as it is. All right. Well, Harel vis- uh, visited Tira, and he met Eichmann for the first time. He saw everybody was miserable there. So he gave each person a day off in rotation. Um, Eichmann was going to be given a new identity, that of a Elal crewman named Zichroni. Zichroni. Eichmann told Malkin, I love the Jews. I wanted them to have their own country outside of Germany. Eichmann was being a jerk about that. So the flight left Israel on May 18th. Abba Iben knew the truth, but most of the other people on the plane did not. The path of the plane was Lod, Rome, Dakar, Recife, Buenos Aires. Uh, while the plane was in the air on the way to Israel, on the way to Argentina, Nick and Dieter Eichmann are, you know, last-ditch attempt to find their father. They break into a shul in Buenos Aires with guns and check the basement. But Eichmann's not there. They considered kidnapping the Israeli ambassador, Lavavi, but they were told, don't go overboard. Malkin was guarding Eichmann that night, and gave Eichmann wine and cigarettes to butter him up a little bit, and then got Eichmann to sign a piece of paper uh, that he's willing to be tried in Israel. Because Eichmann had been rejecting that proposal for a long while, but finally he agreed, fine, I'll go to Israel. Uh, There was trouble on the flight from Israel to Buenos Aires. The plane landed in Recife, and unexpectedly, there was a celebration at the airport on the tarmac. The local Jewish community came to welcome the, the Israeli delegation, and there was a Simon Tov Mazel Tov and Hedinu Shalom Aleichem and Israeli flags. Very, very nice. Okay, but they want to get to Argentina. And when they when it's time to leave the airport, they're not allowed to leave. The, the flight plan is rejected. Why? So the, the fear is that the Argentinians know the truth, and they told the Brazilians, and now we're stuck and we can't go anywhere. As it turned out, no. It's just that the Brazi- the, 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 the the air traffic controller in in, um, in Recife wanted a bribe. So after a three-hour delay, they gave him some kesef, they smeared him, and they were allowed to go on their way. But Svi Hatohar, the pilot, re- realized, I don't want to go to Brazil ever again. Okay. The plane landed in Buenos Aires, on May 19th at 4.05 p.m. The plan was to leave the next day. At the airport, Abba Iben gave a nice speech in Spanish, and uh, Tohar, the pilot, spoke to Isra Harel and said, listen, I'm not going back to Brazil. It was a bad experience, no way. Isra said, fine, I don't want you to go to Brazil. I want you to go right away from Buenos Aires to Senegal, across the ocean. That's a risky journey. But, okay, fine. Can it be done? We'll try our best. We'll see what happens. And the decision was to put Eichmann in an LL uniform. And um, Tohar suggested, let's delay the departure till midnight, on, late on the 20th. Why? Because the crew were just flying for 24 hours, and they're tired. And it's going to be a rough journey going home. They need their sleep. So better to delay a few hours. Okay, fine. So on March on May, on May 20th, which was the last day they're supposed to spend in Argentina, 
There's a lot to do. There are documents to prepare and forge, disguises, backup plans, cleanup, escape for those not on the flight, because not everybody was going on the flight, and destroy all the evidence in the safe houses. All this has to be done. Uh, a local Sayan, a local Jew, faked an injury so that he would go to the hospital and get released from the hospital and get a, a, a record, a paperwork of being released from the hospital so that then the forger could make a similar document for Zichroni, who was really Eichmann, that he was released from the hospital, which is why he's a little bit fuddled. But really, he was sedated. Now, Harrell took his post throughout the afternoon in the airport restaurant. The command center was in the airport restaurant. Um, Dr. Kaplan injected Eichmann with a sedative. And the official plan was to take off at 2 a.m. to receive it. But the actual plan was to take off at midnight and go to Senegal to confuse anybody who might follow them. There was a four and a half hour drive from uh, the safe house to the airport. It was uneventful. They used diplomatic plates and got them through airport security. The crew was told, act rowdy and pretend Eichmann is drunk and form a circle around him so nobody can see him and get him on the plane. Everyone was told to pretend to fall asleep because they were the relief crew. This way, in case anyone enters the plane for inspection, they won't bother waking people up. At 11.15, the plane was moved towards the terminal. Harrell and his agents were delayed in the terminal because there was no passport control officer to check them out. They were nervous. Maybe they, they maybe they're onto us. It turned out it was just a, a snaf, snafu of the airport employees. And by midnight, everybody was on the plane. They're just about to leave when another problem emerges. The tower says there's an irregularity in the flight plan. Harrell was convinced they got us. We're doomed. But what do you do? Did they take off without permission? Then Interpol will chase after them, and the, the, the Argentinian Air Force can shoot them down. Who knows what? You, you don't want to take off without permission. That will that will ruin any chance of success because you can't get back to Israel without a stopover fuel. Well, they told the, the navigator, go to the tower, figure out what the problem is. You have 10 minutes. If you're not back in 10 minutes, we're going to leave without you and hope for the best. As it turned out, there was just a missing signature on the flight plan. He signed it and they were on their way. Uh, by 12.05, the wheels were off the ground. And not a moment too soon, because by 12.30, Nick and Dieter Eichmann realized that the flight from Israel had just left and that their father was probably on it. Okay? And in the, in the 1987 version, uh, movie version of this with Martin Balsam, which, by the way, is a better movie than... Operation Finale or the, and the other Eichmann movies of the last decade or so. The original Martin Balsam movie is the best one. It used to be available on YouTube, but they took it down for copyright reasons, so you can't have to buy it. Um, in, the, in the end of the movie, it shows like people uh, Eichmann coming to the airport uh, uh, basically as a flight is taking off into the sky. It wasn't that close, but it was pretty close. All right. Um, what next? So... The flight to Dakar, Senegal, was risky. Um, Peleg, the, one of the guys in the Elal crew, announced over the loudspeaker that Eichmann had, is on the plane with them. Not everybody knew at that point. So now, finally, everybody knows. And there's a big celebration. The, 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 the champagne is flowing. In the cockpit, however, it was very tense. It was very tough navigation. Will there be enough fuel? It was a close call. It's 4,650 miles on a plane whose max performance is 4,700 miles. If the winds are the wrong di direction, they're doomed. Not everybody was on the plane. Rafi Eitan, Peter Malkin, Judith Nisiahu, Avram Shalom, Shlom, Shalom, Shlomo Dani, all stayed behind to tie up loose ends. But Isra Harel promised them, I won't make the announcement until all of you are back in Israel. Meaning, we're not going to I'm not going to burn you guys and make a public announcement when you guys are still on the ground in South America. That promise ultimately was not kept, by the way. So the low fuel light was flashing. And they, they got to see land. They're still over the ocean. If they don't see land soon, they're all going to die. After 13 hours and 10 minutes, finally they see land. They safely touch down uh, in Dakar. There was a fear that Buenos Aires had told the, the Senegalese that something was wrong. Um, the, uh, 
they drug Achman again, just in case. Some health inspectors come on board, but they don't really do anything. It's all fine. They take off again. The flight plan says they're going to Rome, but they don't go to Rome. They go to Lord Airport in Israel. There was one last concern, and that last concern was don't fly close to the North African coast, lest some Arab country scramble its fighters and down the plane. So fly over the Mediterranean with some you know, wiggle room, some room to spare. This meant that the flight was, was really long. It was 4,600 miles. But there were strong tailwinds, so although it was a little bit of risky, it was only 11 hours that we were going to make. They landed on Sunday, May 22nd at 7 a.m. at Lod Airport. The deputy head of the Mossad arrived and shook Isser's hand, but then he realized, uh-oh, I forgot to arrange transport of the prisoner to the Shinbet facility in, in Yafo. So they, they, he had to quickly scramble to get a van. It took Eichmann to Yafo. Ben Green was uh, was told that the the tuna is in the can. The eagle has landed. We got him. And Ben Green said it's not not good enough. I want someone who saw Eichmann pre-war or during the war to identify him now in Israel. So they were able to get someone from the the Viennese uh, uh, Zionist Commission from 1936 or 37 who had seen him, and another guy from Hungary, basically two Jews who were in Europe in the late 30s who had dealt with Eichmann, they were able to come to Jaffa and identify, yeah, it's really him, it's really him. All right, so that was enough. Now, Harel wanted the, the announcement to be delayed until his agents were all out of South America. But Ben-Gurion said, how many people already know he's here? And, and, and Harel said, well, 50, 60, 70 people already know that he's here. So Ben-Gurion said, ah, if that many people know, it's already it's already too loose. I'm announcing it. He goes to the Knesset, and on May 23rd, at 4 o'clock, he makes his speech and says, uh, Eichmann is in our hands um, and is going to be st- stand trial under the law of Nazi criminals. So that's the whole story up until Ben-Gurion's announcement. Uh, it's a long story, but I did it in exactly an hour and two minutes. Any questions, I will unmute people now. One second to allow people to unmute themselves. Okay, if you want to ask a question, go for it. Did they make it out of uh, out of uh, South America okay? The other yes, way? everybody made it out of South America okay. Some took uh, flights to, to, to uh, New York. Some took trains to Chile. Everybody got out without problem. Um, what ever happened to Ahmed's children? Um, Eichmann's older children remained in Argentina and were basically Nazis. I don't know when they died, but probably not that long ago. Eichmann's youngest son is still alive as is an is a archaeologist. Whatever happened to Silva and Lothar? I don't know. Uh, they kind of they stopped participating in the whole thing already in 1958. Um and uh, I, I, I don't know. I don't know. It's an interesting question. Rabbi, why was Argentina the magnet country where Nazis came? Because Peron was a Nazi. I mean, it was a Nazi sympathizer. And uh, he welcomed the, uh, the possibility of technologically skilled and militarily skilled people coming to support him. That the the, the the talented remnants of the Nazi regime should be at his disposal. He was very happy about that. Do you have any details about uh, the Underground Railroad that got him out of Europe? So we know that he went from um, northern Germany to Bavaria to Austria to Italy to the boat. Uh, the The Underground Railroad was assisted very heavily by the Catholic Church. Uh-huh. The, the 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 Southern German and Austrian Catholic Church facilitated the uh, the railroad. Why didn't they like him and include him in their circle? After all, they were Nazis. So the ones who were wealthier thought he was like a a low life schnook. Like he, they they looked down upon him for being poor. But also, he was a, a bit of like a weird guy, Eichmann. He was he was a, a wacky kind of guy. And the others just didn't, didn't particularly appreciate him. But he he did a lot of damage. I mean, he was the administrator for getting those trains. And he must you know have- what? It, it, 
the accomplishments that somebody had in the war for the cause of Nazism, namely the killing of Jews, wasn't necessarily something that you could uh, use as a, a feather in your cap in South American Nazi circles. What mattered was, what are you doing now? Not what you did 10 years ago. And if now you're a lowly uh, uh, blue-collar worker, they, they laughed at you while they, while they sipped their champagne. He had no skills. He had, I mean, not, not particularly, no. And the others did. Well, they had people. Well, some. I mean, Mengele was a doctor, but other everybody had something they could do. But the, but the the more important thing is if you had a business that was successful and you were riding high, then you thumbed your nose at those who didn't have business. So there was no great solidarity between the SS. Not really. No. Okay. Did the Jewish community suffer at all? Uh, from the existence of the Nazis in, uh, did they do any damage to the Jewish community? Not terrible, but there, but there were uh, sort of flashes of anti-Semitic violence, but nobody got killed. There was some damage to some synagogues. Did the other Nazis go into deeper hiding once they saw how Eichmann was found and captured? Yes, so Mengele disappeared and really went off fully off the grid. Mengele was living out in the open for a long time. And when he realized that Eichmann was, was being pursued and he was being pursued, uh, he made sure to you know no longer be in the phone book. Another guy, Herbert Zuckers, who we'll talk about in a few weeks, he recognized that after Eichmann was captured, he might be next. And in fact, he was next. Did he, do? he killed thirty thousand Jews in Riga. Oh, Riga. Yeah. Two weeks. Okay, so in two weeks' time, we shall continue. Question. Topic will, yeah. Just there was a uh, newspaper reporter who interviewed Eichmann before he was captured. Uh, yes, was, Eichmann did three interviews uh, with with a reporter. Yes. Did that have any role in in them finding him? No. Uh, but it's but it's an interesting part of the story. It has no, it has no bearing on his capture. But it, it all the books about Eichmann, you know, spend some some pages on this aspect of his life in fifty seven, fifty eight, fifty nine. Why did he do these interviews? And his claim was he wanted to tell the true version of the story to rectify what the uh, the media accounts were saying about him because he saw that he was being labeled as a war criminal as a mass murderer and this and that, and he wanted to give his version of the story. That that content is now available to us, but it, it didn't play a role in his capture. So they didn't know about it? In, it wasn't in, released in yet. Or, or Mossad didn't know about it? No, not until after. Okay, so uh, we'll stop here. In two weeks we'll do, where is Yossela? Yossela Schumacher, it's an interesting story, probably unique in all the various tales of the Mossad that we're going to have this year. So stay tuned. Take care, folks. With his grandfather.